Dr. Nancy O'Reilly's groundbreaking book, In This Together, landed on bookstore shelves with a powerful message. When we work together, we can do absolutely anything. Guidance from 40 women leaders with specific strategies to help women advance their careers makes In This Together even more relevant today, especially with the pandemic's impact on women in the workforce. Take your career to the next level with Dr. Nancy O'Reilly's In This Together, now available on audiobook. Download your copy today. If you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go with a group. Folks, this podcast is brought to you by the Real Leaders Impact Collaborative, our once-a-month virtual impact CEO peer groups who meet to support each other with whatever is keeping them up at night. I joined the group back in September, and if I had to say the one major takeaway that I've received is that to not let things outside business affect your on-court performance. This little change has certainly reflected in our business growth and development. And when our members do well, more lives are transformed. That's what impact is all about. So if you're interested, please email us at info at real-leaders.com. Just say the podcast sent you and you want to speak to someone about the impact collaborative. Again, that's info at real hyphen leaders.com. Enjoy the show. In five, four, three, two, and one. And welcome everyone to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. Joining us today, folks, is the conductor of purpose and the co-founder of Gratitude Railroad. Please welcome Mr. Eric Jacobson. Eric, thanks for being with us today. Nice to be here. Of course, of course. So Eric, before we go into uh, your philosophies on impact investing, before everything uh, that you're doing right now to make the world a better place, let's just go back to the roots. Where did you get your start? I started in uh, Great Falls, Montana, which is where I was born. Um, grew up uh, very, very proudly Montanan. Uh, and then I went to college in California and worked in New York City and started a tech company and sold a tech company uh, and really got my roots in impact and in impact investing in 2013. I was trying to run a what I guess was an impact oriented investment firm without knowing that's what I was doing. <clears throat> and I decided that uh, I needed to go and get a real education on uh, what impact investing is and what it does and how it works and what my role could be in it. And so that was really in 2013 when I uh, had my Harvard Advanced Leadership Initiative uh, fellowship. Um, and really after that dove into sort of impact and impact investing 100% in 2013. So was there a moment that stands out to you that made you shift to this new path of impact? I don't know if it was a specific moment. Mm. Um, I think it was a bit, maybe a couple things. When I sold my business, I actually went through a, a pretty big midlife crisis. I was young, I was maybe mm. 35. Um, sort of what's the meaning of life and what am I really trying to do and what's my purpose and who am I and what do I stand for? I'd sort of just been sort of very blindfold driven on on building uh, companies before that. Mm. 
and I actually ended up meeting and hiring a life coach. Um, she calls herself a shaman. Uh, I call her woo-woo. Uh, she's somewhere in that sort of genre. And that really started a personal journey for me, sort of learning about myself um, um, and, and, and what my purpose is. Um, and that then led to <clears throat> starting a small uh, private equity firm called Dolphin Capital. And part of what we were trying to do was invest in companies that had a higher purpose than just generating revenue and profits. And so there was a bit of an evolution there, like a, a, maybe a moment in that life coach experience. And then my year at Harvard was hugely transformative, um, both in learning and in sort of opening my mind to possibilities um, and meeting lots of people in the impact space that for me now are sort of gurus to me. Um, that experience really sort of took what was maybe brewing and pushed me over the edge into impact. Sure, sure. So let's let's break this down, kind of like bite-sized pieces. The shaman, uh, help me understand kind of how that works when, when you're talking about this inward journey. What were some of the exercises that were more profound than the others? Um, um, <laughs> well, some of the more practical or less woo-woo ones would be you know, thinking about who I am, we did an exercise where we created four quadrants and in the four quadrants, I would put things that I enjoy doing and don't enjoy doing things I'm good at and I'm not good at. And then sort of re flip that and try to create what are things that I enjoy doing that, that I'm good at and what are, and trying to do more of those, like finding like that just gives energy and creates fulfillment. Um, and try to do less of the things that I don't enjoy um, and I'm not very good at and seeing how I could sort of, that's sort of a practical one uh, kind of thing that we did. But we also, one of my really most impactful ones, we did a four or five hour meditation, guided meditation that was just for me with other peers, friends of hers. Um, and we did a lot of work on like, finding emotions in my body. So like, can you feel where anger, find anger in your body and where is it and what does it look like and what shape is it? What color is it? What does it taste like sort of kinds of things? And can you take that emotion and move it around your body? And can you take it out of your body and reshape it and put it back in? And um, it was hugely valuable work to sort of understand um, where are my feelings and what, how do they feel and what do they look like? And, oh, here comes my competitive streak. You know, is this a good time to be competitive or should I probably not try to crush my three-year-old child uh, in whatever game we're playing? I should, I should use it as a teaching moment instead of a, a victory moment uh, kind of thing. And that was, has been hugely impactful for me personally. Um, a silly example is, um, Lime green was my color for joy. My, when I sort of experienced joy in the meditation, the color affiliated with it was lime green. So I now try to incorporate lime green in my life. Um, and when I see it, it just, it gives me a smile and gives me joy. <laughs> um, and, and 
you know, surprisingly just getting to know myself in sort of a deep and different and interesting way um, was an important part of the journey. I love hearing that. And, and I, I hope it's helpful for a lot of folks out there listening to this because, you know, I was reading even this morning, you know, about the monk and the monk, it's, it, he has an inward journey. That's his path. And he's got to find what's called his dharma, right? Mm -hmm. And so when you think about your quadrants, it's, it appears like, you know, you, maybe you had a little form of tunnel vision. You know, you're continuing to go, you're, you're making a lot of money, and then you kind of pause and go at 35, oh, geez, you know, what, what are these tremors in my legs? I got to listen to my body. You know, what, what is going on, you know, uh, outside my life? And is this incongruence with what gives me joy? What's what I'm curious about, Eric, is the way you describe the woo-woo. Do you think that people have a negative perception of inward journeys like this? I think I did. I think mm -hmm. I had a negative perception of it. Um, I think I was raised and programmed um, <clears throat> in a very uh, goal-oriented, task-oriented uh, way, which was sort of my, really my mom's sort of focus on success. Um, and what does that, what it, you know, it was sort of more her definition of what that is and what that does, what that was and how to accomplish it. And, and there was no space for, you know, woo woo, right. It was, you know, it was more, I was more raised, pick yourself up by the bootstraps. No one else is going to do it. So you better, you better figure it out on your own. Um, and I, and I think it was beneficial, but for me, I had a sort of a negative perception of it. Um, um, you know, I walked into that first meeting with her and, and it was sort of funny. I sat down and I said, Hey, what are we going to do? What are the tasks? How much is it going to cost? How long is it going to take? What are the goals at the end of it? How am I going to know, you know, hold you accountable that I, this is actually worth the money I'm spending all of that sort of classic stuff. And she just looked to me and she said, what if we just sit here and talk for a little bit? Right. <laughs> and, and that just was foreign to me, right? I, I, I was trying to be a leader or I was trained to be a leader in the, you know, get the right people on the bus, execution, 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 set your goals and objectives, you know, what's your vision, mission, whatever. Um, um, and I got pretty good at that. Um, and so to have someone sort of step back and go, whoa, let's, let's, let's understand who you are and, what life's really all about and what gives you joy and um, how do you then incorporate that in your business world? Cause I love business. I love, um, you know, building companies. I love being around entrepreneurs. I love um, thinking about how to create change and system. Like I enjoy all that stuff. And so um, finding out how to do more of what I enjoy, I think was really critical to having really authentic mission and purpose in what I do. And, and how has this change impacted your lens now? How do you see new investments when you're approaching them? Are you going through the, your own checklist? Are you, um, you know, making sure that they have to fulfill your need? You know, how has this shifted the investment lens of Eric? Yeah, I think, I think that it's, um, it's sort of hard to, explain it's because and it's and it's hard to do and mm. sometimes we have trouble articulating and i think the easiest way to explain it 
is to think sort of we have still very much all the quote traditional sort of due diligence and metrics and um, investment thought process. We've tweaked them and altered them, but for the most part, sort of the traditional, how do you screen and investments? How do you reduce risk? How do you whatever in sort of the financial world? And over top of it, we also have a, a similar, for lack of a better term, due diligence process for thinking on the impact side. Um, and there are a lot of things in impact we can check and look for and put on a checklist and go, oh yeah, okay, it, you know, has this, it has that, or it doesn't have this, it doesn't have that. <clears throat> and, and so we have that, but there's some magic in the middle of, of um, the way I describe it is, um, you know, it's hard to articulate what is beautiful art to you, but you know it when you see it. And sometimes people will say, well, how do you measure impact or how do you track impact or how do you know it's an impactful investment? And sometimes it's like, you know, I don't know that I can always put it in a checklist or, or say exactly what it is, but you generally know it when you see it. Um, hmm. um, and that, so we have a structure that tries to help us, but at the end of the, of the day, there's some amount of, I don't know, faith or gut intuition or um, something that is also a factor in our investing process. So, so help our audience understand kind of what, what is it that we're talking about? We're talking about impact investing. We're talking about companies that you're looking at. Mm -hmm. Get, provide us with an example that's maybe surprised you in the past about what makes a good impact investment. So, yeah, I'm sort of living one right now um, that has been a very cool personal experience for me. So we... Gratitude Railroad um, have different tracks that we look at. Little play on railroad, right, right. Um, but a track might be sustainability, or it might be um, social justice, or it might be homelessness, or it might be education. So we have different tracks where we bring in experts and companies, and we sort of have learning sessions with a lot of different players in the room to sort of learn about how do we invest with real impact in a category. Um, we did one on sustainable fashion. Uh, sustainable fashion is a huge contributor to uh, carbon uh, and, and, and pollution. And, and um, I think a gentleman by the name of Paul Hawken rates it as the third uh, highest contributor um, uh, to our global warming issues. So anyway, we did a track on sustainable fashion and we invested in a, a company called Pasco um, there were lots of really great things about it. The founder was a person of color. Um, they were making their clothes in China by taking the scraps that were otherwise thrown away and making their clothes out of what otherwise would have gone into the, into the dump and building sort of beautiful fashion out of these things. And so we invested in it for sort of those reasons, right? There was a lot of sort of things that we found very attractive in that. In addition to, we thought it was a really good company. When, um, when COVID hit, uh, two things happened. He was primarily making travel apparel and nobody was traveling. So nobody would, people weren't really buying his clothes. Um, and there were supply chain issues getting product out of China. And he said, okay, well, I need to figure out how to manufacture these clothes. So he created what he calls community made and this was, had nothing to do with what we were doing, but he's clearly a very sort of impact leader. Um, 
And he ended up putting a sewing pod. So taking in essence, a, a, a pod that people could make his clothes on and put it in Harlem where a lot of sewers and makers had lost their jobs due to COVID. And now he was making his clothes in the community where people lived. And then he put a pod in a place called G's Bend in Alabama, which has got a wonderful history uh, to it. And um, the women of G's Bend are famous for making and sewing quilts. And the quilts, they've been making them since, you know, before slavery. So they were generally slaves um, that were making these quilts 200 years ago. And they still make them today, generation after generation. He's put a pod in G's Bend, providing really good jobs uh, for the women of G's Bend and has sort of great experience. And now he's putting a pod on the Cheyenne River Reservation, which is um, in South Dakota, um, and, and will hopefully make clothes um, the native uh, women generally women, not always, but will sew the clothes and hopefully down the road, they will be able to incorporate their designs and profit off of their designs. And, and it's just been this wonderful, glorious personal journey, meeting people, um, uh, providing jobs, making clothes in communities, supporting local communities. Um, I know it's just had great impact and he's a clothing company and he's you know trying to, uh, improve the fashion industry from an environmental standpoint. So is it a surprise? I don't know. I, it, it's, it's really rewarding. Um, is he going to be successful? I don't know. It's like any investment, right? Any small startup investment, but it meets all the traditional financial requirements and it's just beautifully impactful. And I think he will have a competitive advantage selling his clothes because it's a great story. It's really doing amazing, amazing things. So here's the question to you. If he were to remove this impact from his company, would his company exist? Would it still have a strategic advantage? Um, I don't know. You know, my pun is intended here, but impact is woven throughout all of what he does. It's just who he is and, and, and the foundation of what the company is built. So does he exist? Would he exist without impact I, I just i don't think it's his dna or the dna of the company could he have raised money without the impact part in order to sort of survive covid you know i i, I don't know there are certainly lots of companies that do amazing work that don't center sort of their being around the impact but it's there um there are companies I think that try to center around impact and it's not really there. Um, anyway, I'm rambling a bit on your question. I, I think it's just hard. I think it's hard to say. Right. I think it's just so woven into who they are and what they are. And that's part of the beauty of it. Right. Right. Yeah. The reason I bring that up is because I think that's a good way, I guess, for myself to qualify an impact company. If I were to remove the, the great impactful things about, this organization, the circular economy, um, the strategic positioning into underserved areas, uh, and the impact that this has, that the entrepreneur has, if you were to remove that, would it be a viable business? You know, would, would it be there? Would it have a strategic advantage in the marketplace? I don't know. And that's why I'm asking the question to see. So I, I, I might answer a different question with what I'm about to say, yeah, but, um, 
Um, I think that what we are finding and what I hope to be true is that impact, authentically impact-driven companies do have competitive advantages that don't necessarily exist in their financial statements when they begin or when they're operating, but that really provide value. So for example, if there's a really mission-driven company, purpose-driven company, they're going to attract employees that care about that purpose. It's going to be easier for them to hire those employees. They're going to turn over less. They're going to have um, more productivity from those employees because the employees care about the mission and the purpose, just as an example. <clears throat> That's very hard to measure in a spreadsheet in any given moment in time, but I think it's true. I think customer acquisition, <coughs> excuse me, I think customer acquisition can be cheaper because consumers want sustainable fashion over not sustainable fashion. Um, so cost of customer acquisition can be lower. Um, repeats rate can be better. So anyway, I think that I think impact elements absolutely give a company um, a competitive advantage that ultimately leads to higher returns and or lower risk, which is better for the investor. Mm -hmm. and, and are you measuring, like how, how much do you weigh on the measurements for an impact company? I, I have very much them? a love-hate relationship with yeah, impact what, uh, measurement discussions. Um, um, I happen to have been trained that, you know, you get what you measure and, you know, it matters what you measure. Um, and so I think the effort to sort of track and measure impact is a very important effort. I think we don't really know how to do it well at all today. I think we can measure some things and we're, we're making some progress as an industry, but it feels that a lot of that is, a lot of impact measurement does two things. One, it places an extra burden on companies. Now they don't just have to measure their financials and get audited by you know an accounting firm and whatever, they have to provide impact reports and impact tracking and impact so it's like a double burden on companies which if that was valuable to the company great but it's almost like it's a requirement um that can be painful so that's one thing i don't pro and con right. yeah. one thing that i don't like about it and in the investment world i think that it feels a lot of times that it is a the lack of measurements or the lack of being able to do it gives a lot of money controllers a reason not to enter into the impact space. So it's like a barrier or it's like an excuse. Oh, well, you know, they're not achieving that impact or that's greenwashing or whatever it is. And it's causing people to, to not put money in. Um, and so I think it's really important we do it and, and that we make progress as an industry, but in, in this messy period of time where we're trying to figure out how do you measure heart? How do you measure love? How do you measure a lot of love? How do you measure a lot of, you know, um, how do you measure if somebody's actually, you know, really has their purpose? How do you measure if the purpose is authentic? How do you measure if they incorporate it a little bit into their company or it's in every fiber of their DNA? I, anyway, it's, it's, um, that's why there's some magic still in that, decision point of investments where I think I and we are getting to a place where we can see it, 
we know it, but sometimes it's really hard to really measure it or say, oh, that's exactly what it is. And, and, and thinking about the heart, and you know, we're talking about the entrepreneur here that and then embeds it into the company. For someone that has reviewed you know, thousands of companies and entrepreneurs, what stands out to you in a pitch and, and in, a, in a proposal uh, to you? Um, so I think, I think that has changed a little bit over time. I think mm -hmm. where, where I am today is, um, because now we've seen thousands of, you know, sort of impact oriented companies and met probably thousands of impact oriented CEOs and founders. Um, I think what stands out is when you meet an entrepreneur and they're so in tune or, um, impact is so integrated that almost when you're talking to them, it's not about the impact. I mean, it is, but it's not, it's not like they're trying to prove to you that they're impactful. Right. They just are. They, they, and you, you meet some of these CEOs and they're, they're, they're talking about their business and their mission and what they're doing. And it's so genuine and, and, and amazing that you just fall in love with them, right? You're like, I'd invest in this person if they were, you know, doing anything because they're going to do it with such sort of authenticity and purpose and passion. So, so it's kind of like the natural entrepreneur that, that kind of stands out to you. Interesting. Um, and what are some, some no-nos? What are some things when, when that you get with their slide decks, pitches, uh, outreach, what are some no-nos that you would uh, recommend well, to your audience? I don't know if this is necessarily a no-no, but, I think we see it a lot of a lot of companies, a lot of CEOs, a lot of companies when it comes to raise capital, right? They're on a mission to raise capital. And if they hear that, oh, this is an impact investment firm, um, I'm going to go show them all the great impact we're doing. And it's not that they're not doing it. And it's not that they aren't good people or they're not, you know, authentic. It's that they're manufacturing their impact story or trying to package it in a way to pitch it, thinking they understand what impact is or the impact that we want. And, you know, like an example is um, um, I just looked at a, at a real estate investment that we don't do that much. So that would sort of eliminate it, but it was real estate investment. And they've been in the real estate business for many, many, many years. And when they saw we were impact, they tried to show, you know, oh, look at all the number of jobs we've provided and look at all the, you know, happy customers we have. We're therefore really impact oriented. And that's mm. not that that's not true, but we would say, well, you've, that's kind of impact light. It's, you're kind of justifying, you're just trying to take whatever you've always done and now wrap an impact wrapping over it. Into it. Mm -hmm. um, and that generally doesn't work very well for us as impact investors um, uh, or for, our, for, for me and for Gratitude Railroad. Right. We really, you know, we want to find the true, the true impact, impactful, real leaders. <laughs> right, right, guys. So when you try to force the impact into it, it, it tends to not work as well or make sense for the investor. Right. It, it, and, 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 you know, it's a lot of times, you know, my reaction to it a lot of times is I'm really glad you're 
doing this, this is a good part of your impact journey because I'd rather them try to put a wrapper over what they're doing and be thinking about impact. That's like a step to getting to sort of real authenticity. Um, and, and, and I started there, right? I started in a place where I'm like, well, I'm, I think I'm an impactful dude. I think I make a difference in life. I think I'm a good human being. I think I built a pretty cool company before I got into to this impact space. Um, but it was, you know, it, it, it wasn't what we're looking for today. What is impact to you, Eric? Um, um, the way I think about it is, um, you know, we have a lot of problems and challenges in the world. And I'm a big believer in business and, and, and capitalism. And I don't think profit is a dirty word um, at all. Um, and I think that if we could figure out how to harness business as a force for good, if we could find companies and leaders that are trying to solve these real world problems like homelessness, global warming, civil justice, um, sort of the areas that we have gratitude think about, if we can harness business to really make a difference in those kinds of things, that's impactful. Hmm. That, that can make a real difference. Um, you know, not that, I don't know, not that, um, you know, making clothes isn't impactful, right? You want everybody to, to have clothes, right? You want, you don't want people to be, not be able to put clothes on their back, right? But that's not sort of where we would focus for us on impact, right? We want to, we're looking for like the leading, bleeding edge of how do we really create businesses that are going to make a real difference in, in people's lives. I love that, you know, because many people, you know, perceive capitalism as this evil machine, right? And, you know, you and I could talk about that all day, but we're not going to, right? Um, but, <laughs> I have that conversation with my daughter all the time right. and a lot of people all the yeah. time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I had it with my uh, next door neighbor last weekend. Um, and, and really, you know, it's amoral. Right. And it's it's just a system. But, you know, oftentimes, like our cell phones, systems need updating. Right. And so when I love hearing when you're saying, like, you know, the entrepreneur isn't really talking about the impact, they're just doing it. And eventually impact, which was sustainability, which was, you know, whatever else and institutional philanthropy, you know, whatever it is, um, it's evolving into what is known as business today. What updating, if anything? do you see that the system needs to make to um, allocate more capital to the areas that need it most? Uh, that's a big, that's a really big question. Um, and maybe it's really big to me because it's sort of what I spend huge amounts of my brain power, whatever limited brain power I have um, thinking about. And I think Kevin, I'll start at a, at a, at a high level. So I think that I think that I'll start with this. Businesses, I think, like people, um, have a personality and a culture, and that changes over time given sort of where they are in their evolution or growth, both as a person or as a business. I heard a Harvard professor talking about how um, she was saying, you know, Walmart, when it started, was a hugely impactful business. So it was trying to solve a problem 
that the poor people in um, um, uh, Bentonville or in Arkansas um, needed access to the same sort of quality of goods and services as were available in New York City, right? There was a sort of a wealth proximity gap. Um, and, they, and, and they built a business and a business model to get goods and services to people who otherwise didn't have access to them. And there are nonprofits that do that in you know, third world countries today, right? They're trying to create access. Um, and she then argued, but you know, as Walmart grows and expands, it, you know, as humans leading it and it gets to be more and more profit oriented or less and less impact oriented or whatever as it evolves. So anyway, this, she argues that Walmart then went through its sort of dark evil period, but it's, it's a much more thoughtful, impactful company today than it was 25 years ago, right? It's moving towards being more impactful. As a concept, it's super interesting to think about businesses sort of having their own personality and culture and change. So I think businesses can move, existing businesses can move more and more to be more and more impactful. I also believe that to be true about capitalism. I think that the form of capitalism that was practiced 200 years ago in this country, for example, was very different than what was happening in the year 1900, was very different than sort of capitalism philosophies in the 1950s versus today. And I think it will continue to evolve. So I think about a lot about sort of what is capitalism? What are its flaws? Um, how does it need to change? Where is it going? Where do we need it to go? And how do we invest in companies that are at the leading edge of that? So they're going to gain momentum because they're leading that. Um, how do we invest in leaders that are thinking about this? They're thinking about the new, better ways to practice capitalism. Um, so I happen to be an optimist. I think capitalism is changing and changing fast for the better. I happen to believe it's flawed. <laughs> I happen to believe there are a lot of flaws, but I believe that that um, the vast majority of leaders really care. They're not bad people and they're trying to do what's right. Doesn't mean we don't have a lot of bad actors, we do. Um, but I think it is evolving and, and we're just trying to be a little player helping to push it along and investing in the front end of it, trying to prove that businesses that are a force for good um, are going to be more successful than those that are extractive. And, and what are your thoughts on growth uh, just as a concept? I mean, traditionally you have natural growth in a company like, like a Lowe's or a Home Depot, and then you have companies that have growth through acquisition. What are your thoughts on capitalism there? Is there any way to tweak that system um, uh, or, or are both stages of growth um, of equal import, or I guess equal um, morality to you? Uh, boy, morality is a tough one too. Um, and I play in that, I have to play in that thought process a lot. Um, or is that an unfair question? <laughs> No, no, no. I think it's a great, I think it's a really important and great question. I, I, I don't think I'm going to preface by saying I, I don't have a very good answer, right? Mm. I, I, it's something that I personally struggle with, right? Is growth, is growth, is growth good or not, right? I, <laughs> there's a lot of uh, arguments of how growth is maybe not so good. Um, and I think they have a lot of validity and, and sort of, so I'm in a process of trying to sort of wrestle and struggle with it. Um, 
Um, and so I'm probably going to avoid the answer um, because I, I sit and ponder, and, and others are thinking about this as well, like, how do we keep growing the population mm. as an example? And there are people who argue, like Elon Musk, that we don't have enough people. And there are people who argue, man, the problem that we have is there are so many people consuming and using and living and surviving that we're destroying the earth, you know, just as an example. And, and um, so I don't quite know how to answer. I, I don't have a good answer for it because I, it, it's, that's a, those are big, big, big questions um, that are probably bigger than my brain. So I will say now that I've rambled around yeah. <laughs> in meaningless dialogue, trying to get my thoughts. Um, I, I think that um, businesses in the economy are working hard to try to be more regenerative. Um, there are a lot of companies doing really incredible things and industries that are doing pretty incredible things. And I think that we, not, we need not just circular economies, but ultimately we need regenerative economies. Because if we just get to circular, we're going to be where we are. We have to figure out how to actually be regenerative. Um, and that's a lot of complicated, big thinking that's sort of beyond my, my pay grade. Um, but the whole idea of regenerative economics is very fascinating to me. Same here. Yeah, it seems to be the new buzzword of the last two years, regeneration, regenerative, regenerative agriculture. And it's going to continue to evolve, I hope. Yes. Uh, let's go let's go back to maybe not growth but but funding. You see these investments in these early stage companies that provide a valuation of a billion dollars without even making a like a minimum viable product, right? You know, it's just on the idea. And investors right. are going to potentially lose their money versus maybe allocating that money toward, you know, uh, business problems that could be solved in socially responsible ways, right? What are your thoughts on on the entrepreneur themselves? What, as an investor, are you investing in the idea and the change that could have in the world? Or are you, do you need a, a minimum viable product, something that where the entrepreneur, they have skin in the game, they've gone out, they've built the product, here it is, and this is what could potentially happen. Give me your thoughts on early stage seed investments. Yeah, so, I, I, I'm going to respond really on just where we are, and 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 we need we need investors in all of the stages that are thinking about impact and change. Um, we tend to not do idea investing. Um, not that again, not that there can't be really great ideas that are super impactful that deserve funding. It just happens to not be where we are. Um, we're, we generally are, are investing in entrepreneurs um, that have experience, um, credibility, maybe, maybe, maybe not a minimum viable product. So we will invest, for example, in a lot of first-time fund managers um, that a lot of people won't invest in because they're really risky, right? They don't have a viable product. They're not on fund two or fund three or fund four. Mm. Um, and a lot of the reason we're in that space is we think we can have a lot of significant impact. So, um, <clears throat> so 
you know, the industry in the financial services industry, there's a lot of systemic racism built into the system. Um, and, and my example, just as one of many examples is, if you're running a giant investment firm and you have billions of dollars to invest, you can't invest, you know, a million dollars in a million people in order to deploy that capital. You have to, you have to have a size number, right? So a lot of big money investors will say something like, well, it's a minimum of $50 million we're going to put into a fund. We don't want to be any more than 10% of the fund. So the minimum fund is therefore $500 million. And we don't want to invest in any fund manager that hasn't been doing this for 10 years. And we don't want to invest in a first-time fund. We only want to invest if you, you know, you're on fund three or greater. So they have all these rules. But if you have no black fund managers today, because they're very, very few, especially as a percentage, and a new qualified black fund manager comes up with their vision and their mission and their plan to raise a fund, they're never going to break into that system because the system says, no, 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 you have to have experience. You have to be on your third fund or your fourth fund. So we'll invest in a lot of first-time fund managers that I think a lot of people think are risky or maybe that's not a minimally viable product, but we will try to solve the, the risk mitigation, the risk adjustment size, whatever, and meet people where they are whatever that is. So we just did a fund. It's called Ruthless for Good. Um, we invested in it. He, um, he's, uh, he was running, uh, uh, Aaron Walker is his name. He was running an incubator. I call it an incubator um, for primarily people of color out of New Orleans. And um, he decided he wanted to raise a fund. That for us was, oh my God, he has incredible experience. He has Wall Street experience even. He's an amazing human being. I think we have a huge competitive advantage by investing in him, even though it's not his third fund. Um, so anyway, is that a minimally viable product? I don't know. Is that risky? I don't know. We think it's a great investment. We think he's incredible. We think his experience is amazing. And we think we're going to crush it on that investment and do really good. good things. And at the end of the day, that's impact, right? I mean, you're providing yep. something that wouldn't otherwise not have been there before for, for that individual. You know, Eric, you, you've talked a lot about how you can harness capitalism to sustain the planet, people, and profits in multiple different ways. At this stage in your life, where have you landed on the purpose of capitalism? The purpose of capitalism. Or the purpose of business. Um... That's, that's, I should think about that question. I should have thought, I should be thinking more about that question. Um, most of your other questions I've actually thought a lot about. Um, you know, I think, I think business and capitalism fulfill a lot of, a lot of roles. I think there's a lot of purpose to it. Um, you know, it's a system to, system to exchange goods and services um, in free will between, between uh, people and businesses. Um, so it's moving resources. It's it's providing um, for people's needs. Um, and I think, in, and, and a lot more, there's a lot more things. And I think what happens is the balance between all those things gets out of whack in the capitalist structure or within a business or between businesses. Um, I think 
people or companies forget that they're here to serve everyone as opposed to just me. <laughs> right. Um, so I think, I think that, um, yeah, that was a really terrible answer because I hadn't really thought about it, but, um, you know, at the end of the day, it's here to help humans have a better life. Right. Improve lives, serve others, certainly great qualities of great investment. Uh, now, Eric, to you, let's bring this home. What is your definition of a real leader? <laughs> I have thought about this one. I, I think that, um, I think that when I was at Harvard, they had a concept called advanced leaders, which is the fellowship that I did, the advanced leadership initiative. And um, I, I loved sort of my take from that was that I was a leader um, that had a vision and a mission and a purpose. And my goal was to get people to believe in that vision and mission and purpose and get the right people on the bus and to have a goal in mind and rally everyone to get there, right? I was gonna lead people to a place. And at Harvard, what I took away from it was that an advanced leader in their definition was more of a guide. So instead of walking up to someone and saying, hey, this is, I love to fly fish. Instead of going to someone and saying, hey, let's go fly fishing. I know a really great spot. It's beautiful and there's really big fish and we can go, hey, do you want to go, right? And I lead them on this great sort of fishing journey. That instead to be a guiding leader is to say, hey, what do you want to do today? Oh, you want to go fishing. What are you looking for in this fishing experience? Are you looking for big fish, lots of fish, beauty, an hour, three hours? How, how do I, what do you want and how do I deliver that to you? So it's more of a guide um, as opposed to a, a visionary leader. And I think real leaders um, not only do those two things, but can understand when one is what's best and when the other is the best. Like they, you can differentiate between what I like to call leadership with a capital L, which is sort of the old one, and leadership with a small L, which is the new one. How do the, the great leaders, I think, understand how to lead in the right way in the right time in the right place because it changes all the time fantastic i love that well eric thank you so much for sharing with us and we're in our journey today best of luck going forward for eric jacobson i'm kevin edwards asking you to go out there be a guide and always folks keep it real thanks eric thanks And thank you, good people, for hanging on to this episode of The Real Leaders Podcast. And before we go today, I just want to make sure that you are all aware that we have now launched our new Real Leaders membership. If you want to get access to all of Real Leaders Magazine, private member-only events, and free courses online, hit the link in the show notes and enter in coupon code PODCAST20 to receive 20% off a 100 dollar a year subscription hit the link in the show notes enter in coupon code podcast 20 to receive access to all of real leaders to get you to the next level thanks for listening to this episode and always keep it real